Hi, I'm Rose. And I, wait, no, okay. Uh, and I'm Gabe. <laughs> yes, and we are the Running Unopposed podcast. For episode two, we're going to be discussing a man known for a few things. His weed whacker haircut, his Midwestern charm, his blatant corruption, and his Nazi apologia. Today is going to be an interesting one, folks. That's right. We are talking about Jim Trafficant. Yes. I only know about this man because he is the mentor and former congressman of former presidential candidate, noted yoga enthusiast, and current Ohio Senate candidate, Tim Ryan. But just so you know, Tim Ryan like does is not like crazy at all. He's just like a very normal guy. Yeah, I... Tim Ryan worked for him because they're from the same town, which we'll get into in a second. I'm not really going to get into Tim Ryan's time with him, though, because I didn't really find anything interesting. Yeah, because I, I don't like Tim Ryan wasn't doing the things Jim was doing. Yeah. So before we can get into James Anthony Trafficant, let's talk about where he's from. Youngstown, Wait, Ohio. Was Anthony? I think so. I was not. Oh, I was not expecting Anthony for some reason. Yeah. James Anthony Trafficant Jr. I was expecting like bullfighter or like. I'm trying to think like um uh like something crazy like um uh like Buxton Hauser or something. <laughs> Buxton Hauser. I just made that up. I don't think that's a real name. That would be a beautiful name. I'm naming my first child Buxton Hauser. That was my original name before my parents changed it. Ah. Was... No, it wasn't. <laughs> yeah. Also, folks, there's going to be more profanity this episode. I generally try to keep it to a minimum, but I'm going to be reading a lot of quotes. And Jim Trafficant loved swearing. So there's going to be a fair amount of that. Just By the way, um, our last uh, episode last week was on Byron Looper. If you think Byron Looper is crazy, Byron Looper is like, if we're, if there's like a team, if there's like some like, like hypothetical like team that brings up like these politicians, like Byron Looper was like farmly, like Jim Trafficant is like the all time like Hall of Famer. Yeah. So home run hitter of like the crazy politicians. Yeah. So when I said we were going to do a politician involved with the mob in the Byron Looper episode, I was talking about this guy. So let's get into Youngstown, where he's from. It's the county seat of Mahoning County, Ohio, on the border with Pennsylvania. It's 66.6 miles from Pittsburgh and 75.4 miles from Cleveland. It's pretty much exactly in between the two. It's sort of your classic Midwestern industrial city. It was settled pretty early on in the U.S.'s history. They found coal there in the early 1800s. Some Brits and Germans showed up. In 1803, the first blast furnace in Ohio was built there with some iron industrial plants. The industry was supported by a lot of early railway connections. You get the idea. Long depression of the 1870s hits. Wages declined by at least 25%, more in some places. The industry of Youngstown pivots to steel manufacturing. The companies merge with and get bought by national corporations. 1880 to 1890, Youngstown doubled and po- over doubled in population from 15,000 to 33,000. And by 1920, it gained another 100,000. So in 40 years, it went from 15,000 to 130,000 through massive immigration. In 1920, 60% of the population of Youngstown was either foreign born or had at least one foreign born parent. Were they mainly to German and Deitch. Polish? Uh, a lot of Eastern and Southern Europeans, yeah. Okay, Some okay. African-American internal migrants from the South who came up, but a lot of them were like Eastern and Southern European. Yeah, the ones, the people who came there from outside of America were Southern Eastern European. The ones from in America were African-American mainly. 
Yeah, uh, Traffic Ant himself was mostly of Italian and Hungarian descent. So he, he kind of exemplifies this. Yeah. And as is the American tradition, when you get a bunch of immigrants from Southern and Eastern Europe and internal migrants from the South who are black, what do you get? I assume a lot of racial conflict. Yes, you get a thriving Ku Klux Klan. Yeah, by the way, I, I think Rose might have said this, but I'm going to say it again in case that in case it turns out she didn't say it. Youngstown is kind of like the quintessential like Rust Belt town that was like thriving from like after the Depression to like the 1960s. And then as deindustrialization hit, like because their economies were so centered around like things like steel and coal, like their populations declined. Yes, which we're going to get into. So there was a lot of conflict with the clan. Uh, I will put links in the show notes to s- more stuff specifically about it, but I don't want to run on too long about it. However, there was also some early labor action in the city. They took part in the Little Steel Strike of 1937, which you should look up because it's quite interesting. In short, Big Steel, U.S. Steel, signed a collective bargaining agreement with the Steel Workers Organizing Committee. Uh, several smaller steel companies refused to sign it. The Steel Workers Organizing Committee just offered them the same agreement. The steel, the Little Steel companies agreed to, decided not to, and somewhat literally went to war. Something like 300 people were injured in this conflict, in this strike, and thousands were arrested. It's one of the most violent labor disputes in U.S. history. No, American, I'm not gonna, the American I, labor movement was pretty violent. Yeah, this is one of the most violent ones, though. And it's not talked about the way like the Battle of Blair Mountain is talked about. That so was that's in the, West Virginia, right? Yeah, with coal miners. Because of the company towns? Yeah. Okay. We, uh, we'll, we'll, we might do an episode on that because it is kind of interesting. Yeah. All I'll say, though, is that on June 21st in Youngstown, there was an incident where two people were killed and 42 were injured. And congressional hearings in 1938 revealed that some companies, the, some little steel companies, had been quite literally stockpiling weapons to give out to, like, Pinkerton-type goons. Wait, the little steel companies were doing that? Yeah. The ones who didn't sign the agreement that Big Steel signed. Wait, why are they hiring... Wait, why would they have the Pinkerton types? Wouldn't it be the Big Steel who had those to, like, make sure that the striking, like, workers got back in place? No, the... The... the um. If I remember correctly, the big steel workers for U.S. Steel had already gotten their collective bargaining agreement. Oh, it was the okay, little steel okay. companies that hadn't given it yet. Oh, okay. Be- yeah. Oh, because the little steel companies were okay with the, those types of agreements, but the, the the workers were not. No, other way around. The little steel companies weren't okay with it. But the workers were? Yes. The workers wanted the big steel and little steel to have the same agreement. And Little oh, Steel okay, wanted okay. a different Okay, agreement. I was a little confused. Okay. Yes, my bad. Okay. Yeah. So Youngstown was also involved in an earlier steel strike in 1919, but we've already gotten sidetracked enough. So the iron mines dried up a bit earlier than some places, but there were still steel mills there, and steel mills are not easy to build. So if you have them, you're pretty prosperous. The highest population they've ever had on a census was in 1930 with 170,000 people. And it was in that decade that James Trafficant Sr. married Agnes Farkas in 1937. Four years later, in 1941, they'd have a son, James Anthony Trafficant Jr. Knowing James, knowing Jim Trafficant's like life story, it would be very funny, but also very possible that like James Trafficant Sr. like wasn't the name of his dad. It was just like a random guy they met. And they're like, or like a guy they didn't even know. And they're like, yeah, we like the name. So he just gave you James Trafficant Jr. Oh, so is he like my uncle, your best friend? No, like we, so like a guy we heard about in the paper. He seems cool. 
So he graduates Cardinal Mooney High School, Catholic school in Youngstown. Uh, he's raised very Catholic in 1959. A Politico article said he initiated a football rivalry with Ursuline High School in Youngstown. I didn't really look into that because it seemed irrelevant. But football is a bit of our story because he went on to attend the University of Pittsburgh, where he was quarterback of the university of, of the university's football team. And he played with the one and only Mike Ditka. I don't know how many football fans are listening, but quick rundown for those of you who don't know. Rookie of the Year on the Bears, won the Super Bowl with them in 1963, won a Super Bowl with the Cowboys a couple years later, became an assistant coach for the Cowboys, got another Super Bowl with them in 1977, and then goes back to the Bears, becomes the head coach, takes them to Super Bowl 20. They beat the Patriots 46 to 10. So legend. Yeah, words. quite legendary in football. Yeah. So that's kind of fun. Was Jim I, good at football, like good enough to be professional? I'm about to get into that. I'd like to read two short excerpts about his time on the University of Pittsburgh football team, because I think they reveal a lot about him. The first is from the Pittsburgh Post-Gazette article about him from April 12th, 2002. Trafkant started at Pitt in 1961 and 1962. His fans say he was so brash that even then he regularly changed the plays sent in by coach John Michelosen. Michelosen? I don't know how to say that. Trafkant's Pitt teammates say that story is pure myth. Media coverage of Trafficant in his later years, it always describes his clothes, his toupee, his kooky catchphrase. He's sort of this weird zoo animal to them. And he was a weird guy, to be fair. But I think that quote that, you know, his fans say he said all that his fans say he would do this. But then the people who actually knew him said it wasn't true. I think that shows a lot about how Trafficant gets covered as sort of this larger-than-life crazy figure, when he really wasn't. He was just a deeply corrupt and shitty man, as we'll get into. Like, he was, I mean, he was, like, I don't want to say larger-than-life, but he was definitely a crazy, like, the the reputation was not entirely unearned. Like, he was a very crazy, a very crazy man. No, but, like, it shows that people who liked him sort of liked the idealized version of him that existed in their heads. Like this no-nonsense, like, brash guy who goes out and who goes to the beat of his own drummer kind of thing? Yeah. Okay, yeah, no, that so makes sense. the second quote is pure trafficant. It is from his Washington Post obituary. Pitt has the worst coaching staff in the country, he told a reporter during his senior season. I've made two big mistakes in my life. The first one was coming here, and the second one was staying. <laughs> Just... Just utterly trashing the university he plays football for. I mean, You'll love to see it, folks. Entirely unearned reputation, very brash, very, uh, very honest, I guess. Yeah, yeah. No, it's it's a little wild. But that was how he was. So he actually did get drafted by the Steelers in 1963, 20th round, 276th overall pick in the draft. Coach Buddy Parker of the Steelers said of him, quote, Trafficant can throw the ball well which truly damning with fate praise, if I've ever heard it. I thought you were going to say, I thought the second part was going to be, but not good enough to be a football player. No, that's the whole quote. Trafficant can throw the ball well. That's not, that's not, that seems like a compliment. I mean, that's important. I don't know if it's a huge compliment, considering they picked him in the 20th round. But, you know, he got drafted, so he's clearly had some talent. However, he clearly couldn't throw the ball well enough, because they decided not to sign him. He went to California, and he said to the Beaver County Times, out on the coast, I can make a fresh start. Uh, how do you think that went? He played football. No one heard from him again until he went to the Hall of Fame. 
You're right. He tried out for the Oakland Raiders, and he won six Super Bowls. No. He tried out for the Oakland Raiders, and uh, he did not make a fresh start. They didn't take him. But then they did, and he won seven Super Bowls. That's right. No, it's not. Episode. I've been... No. (laughs) No, I'm just... 12-minute episode. Good night, everybody. That's right. (laughs) So... With that career path closed, he went back to the University of Pittsburgh. He gets a master's degree in administration and another one in counseling from Youngstown State University. He starts teaching courses on addiction and recovery at various commun- at various universities. And he was the finance director of the Youngstown Community Action Program and director of the Mahoning County Drug Program from 1971 from 1971 to 1980. I didn't find a lot of evidence of what he actually did back then. Uh, if I ever get a newspaper.com subscription, I will dig into it, though, because he's sort of an ongoing fascination of mine. But anyways, in 1981, he becomes sheriff, and that's when the story gets fun. Youngstown back then was known as Crime Town, USA, and he was a law and order type of man. He set records in terms of the number of drug busts he oversaw, and he would allegedly carry wander the city with a two-by-four. I couldn't verify that. But he clearly wanted people to believe it was true because his campaign website used to have an image of him swinging a two by four that said banging away in D.C. I mean, if there is one guy to just like do to just become like a vigilante, it would be Jim Traficant. Yeah, Uh, as you'll see, he kind of made his own rules as a sheriff. He was in office for four years, 1981 to 85. And during that time, he actually went to jail for a few days because he refused to foreclose on the homes of several people who had been unemployed. Basically, the major employer in Youngstown, the Likes Corporation, closed down Youngstown Sheet and Tube, the big steel manufacturing plant. So a lot of his workers, a lot of workers were having trouble finding new jobs that paid the same. And he kind of became a hero in Youngstown for refusing to foreclose on their homes. This issue of home, uh, home foreclosure will come up again later, so remember it. So, so far, it seems like he's, in addition to being like this urban legend, actually is making a name for himself by by doing things that people like. Yeah, I mean, to be clear, that's a cool thing to do. Like, yeah. Although yeah. later he would become well known for doing things that many people did not like. Well, a slightly less cool thing he did during his time as sheriff was take $163,000 in bribes from the mob. So let's get into the mob a bit. Youngstown was a little too small to have its own dedicated mafia family. So the Cleveland mob split Youngstown with the Pittsburgh mob because it was about halfway between the two. However, the Cleveland mob was weak from their war with this guy, Danny Green, who was trying to cut into the mostly Italian Cleveland mob's action by just killing people. Uh, He was part of a mostly Irish mob. There were like 40 car bombs set off during this gang war. I did a bunch of research into it, but it's not super relevant, so I won't go into it a ton. Uh, There's a book called To Kill the Irishman, The War That Crippled the Mafia by Rick Perello, a former police chief from the area, that is decent about it. Uh, And there's also a movie on there called Kill the Irishman that I haven't seen. What was the uh, time span of these 40 car bombs going off? Like a couple years. How many people died? Uh, It's kind of hard to say. I don't remember. But yeah, the Cleveland mob does eventually kill Danny Green. Some of their top guys go to jail for it. Those arrests plus Green's attacks mean they're not at full strength. So the Pittsburgh mob says, hey, the Cleveland mob is weak. Let's push on Youngstown, muscle them out, and then we can control the whole area. So the Cleveland mob senses that this is going to happen. So they get nervous. 
these three brothers, Ronald, Charles, and Orlando Orly Carabia, which I'm guessing on the pronunciation, I couldn't figure out how to say it. It's C-A- Carabia. Let's go with Carabia. They oversee the prostitution and gambling rackets in Youngstown. So Charles and Orly, they go to Trafficant while he's sh- uh, uh, during his 1980 campaign for county sheriff on behalf of the Cleveland mob, and they offer him money. He accepts it. And here's the thing. Charles secretly records the conversations to use as leverage later. And the feds, they find these tapes after a tip from the sister of Charles and Orly. I want to read a few excerpts from these tapes just to show you how blatant this is. I'm getting this from an article in the New Republic called Crime Town USA by David Graham from the year 2000. In this excerpt, Charles Orley and Trafficant are discussing which politicians are under the control control of the Pittsburgh mob. Orley, you believe they got all them fucking people? Trafficant, I know they got Mayor Vukovic. Charlie, oh, they definitely got Vukovic. Trafficant, I know they got Leskovansky. I know they got Haynes. I know they got Morley. I know they got Gilmartin. Charlie, they don't have Gilmartin. Trafficant paused as if running through the list of names in his mind. I don't know all of them, he said. He finally said, but I know it's a fucking fistful. To reiterate, that recording was made during his campaign for county sheriff in 1980. Here's another excerpt. This is just him talking. I am a loyal fucker, and my loyalty is here. Now we've got to set up in the business that they've run for all these fucking years and swing that business over to you. And that's what your concern is. That's why you financed me, and I understand that. So the mob was giving him money? Very much so. And he's just openly stating this. Yes. So this is like the real life version of the Neil Breen film, of that one Neil Breen film, where that guy goes, now that we're paying off our fellow elected representatives, we can do more crimes. Jim Trafficant is kind of the villain in a Neil Breen film in a lot of ways. Of just his dialogue openly being, now that we can steal more money and do more bad things, we'll be unstoppable. Yeah, no, that is that is kind of the, the trafficant way. So, the standard to convict someone of bribery in the U.S. can be kind of high sometimes. However, when you are recorded as saying, that's why you financed me, and I understand that, in reference to your future plans to cooperate with a mafia family, you don't really have a defense. Keep that in mind, because we're going to get into his trial in a bit. So in the tapes, he admits to receiving roughly $100,000 from the Cleveland Mafia. It says that if any of his deputies try to rat on him, and this is a direct quote, they'll come up swimming in the Mahoning River. So not only was he working with the Mafia, he talked like he was in a James Cagney movie. Who? You don't know who James Cagney is? No, I don't know who that is. Okay, never mind. We're, we're going to move on because Wait, otherwise I'm going to do No, you talked for like 20 minutes about this in the episode right now where you scold me for not knowing who someone is. No, just just look him up after we're done recording. Okay, no, let's have a 20 minute break in the episode where we go on record where you lecture me about James Cagney. Okay, no, we're not doing that. <laughs> anyway, okay, like 30 minutes. You're right. It's kind of a complex topic. We might need more time. Yeah. So remember when I said he took about 100000 from the Cleveland mob and that he was convicted of taking 163000 in bribes? Do you want to guess where that $63,000 came from? Was it the Jewish mob or were they not involved? The Jewish mob was not involved in this. I, no. thought, there, I thought the Jewish mob was involved at some point. Nope. Oh. So it was it was just, Itali- the, just the Italian mob and the Irish mob? That was in Cleveland. The Pittsburgh mob, uh, I'm not sure what their ethnic makeup was. I didn't really look into them much. Oh, okay. They were a little less interesting. However, 
you'd be right that the Pittsburgh mob was the other place he got that $63,000 from. So not only was he taking bribes from one mob, he was taking bribes from two different competing mobs. So what do you think his end game was here? Um, I'm going to assume pit them both against each other and then go up to each of them without the other one knowing so that we, he could say, look, this mob is getting more powerful and just suddenly has all these privileges, pay me more to combat them. And then he would do that with the other mob. That is entirely possible. Uh, he was kind of doing uh, that, the you know, Mac from It's Always Sunny. I'm playing both sides. So I always <laughs> come out on top. That's kind of weird. So. I'm going to read more from Crimetown USA because it explains it better than I could. By the way, when in this quote, when it says Croner, it's referring to Bob Croner, the FBI agent who led the investigation. Quote, on the tapes, Croner and his colleagues could hear Trafficant hatching a plan to protect himself from the Pittsburgh Mafia. And the officials they controlled. Let's look at it this way, okay? He said, they do have the judges. They can get to the judges and what they need done. What they don't have is the sheriff. And I'm one step ahead. On the day he was sworn into office, Trafficant said, he'd take some of the money the Pittsburgh family had given him and use it as evidence to arrest them for bribery. What's more, he described what he and the Carabs, that's what the Car- uh, Caribbeus, how do we decide it was pronounced? Carabia? Carabia would say <laughs> if their secret dealings were ever exposed. They would say, quote, I was so fucking pissed off at this corrupt government. I came to you and asked you guys if you would assist me to break it up. And you said, fuck it, we'll do it. Okay, that's what you're going to say in court. So his plan was to essentially take bribes and then arrest the people who gave him the bribes, but keep the money, which is now I'm not a police officer, but I'm pretty sure that's not how it works. I was going to say I'm pretty sure you don't get to take the bribe and keep the money and then arrest them for bribery. I was going to say, I don't think it's like, I don't think it's. I, I, don't, I was going to say, like, with drug busts, for example, I don't think it's a thing where the police are like, oh, we confiscated the drugs, so now we can use them for ourselves. Like, I think they dispose of them or, like, use them as evidence. They do sometimes do that, but it's not legal. When they do it, it's illegal. Okay. There but have I been cases think... where, yeah, there have been cases where police have done that, but it's super illegal. But, like, okay, but I don't think, like, the, that's, like, the modus operandi or, like, the overwhelming number of cases. I don't think most no. of them will keep the drugs for themselves. So according to sworn court testimony from Croner and other agents present, Croner asked the sheriff if he was conducting an investigation into organized crime in the valley. Trafficant said he wasn't. Croner then asked him if he knew Charlie the Crab or Orly the Crab. Trafficant said he'd only heard of them. You never met them, Croner asked. No, Trafficant said. You never received money from them. No, he said again. Then Croner popped in the tape. Trafficant, they've given $60,000. Orly the Crab. They gave sixty, and what'd we give? Trafficant. Okay, 103. After only a few seconds, Trafficant slumped in his seat. I don't want to hear anymore, he said, according to Croner. I've had it heard enough. In the FBI's version of events, Trafficant acknowledged he'd taken the money, and he agreed to cooperate in exchange for immunity. In front of two witnesses, he signed a confession that read in tiny cursive letters, During the period of time that I campaigned for sheriff of Mahoning County, Ohio, I accepted money with the understanding that certain illegal activities would be allowed to take place in Mahoning County after my election, and that as sheriff, I would not interfere with those activities. Damn. So, open and shut case, right? Right? No, apparently, because Jim Trapp's life story would never be that simple. We're halfway through this script. (laughs) Yeah, his life story would never be that simple. Yeah. 
Trafkant realized he'd probably have to resign as sheriff because, you know, he admitted to taking bribes. So he decided to recant his confession. He was asked about it on a TV station, and he said, and this is a direct quote, all those people trying to put me in jail should go fuck themselves. Honesty, I guess. Like, points for honesty, I guess. I don't, I don't really know how to spin that. <laughs> yeah. Shockingly, the FBI did not go fuck themselves, and they arrested Jim Trafficant. So here our boy was, staring down the barrel of 23 years in jail at the age of 41. And what does he decide to do? What do you think he does? Runs for Congress. Not yet. Oh. We'll get to that. Says, rep- wait. Oh, let me guess. Yeah. He goes to the judge. When the judge says, I order you to 50 years in jail, he turns around to the judge and goes, no, I sentence you to 50 years in jail. <laughs> and the judge goes to jail and Jim Trafkant, uh becomes a hero yet again. Close. Uh, not quite. What oh. he does is he represents himself in court. The judge warns him this is a very bad idea. But he does it anyways. Even though I'm he's not read- a lawyer. Huh? Even though he's not a lawyer? No, he's not a lawyer. I'm going to go back to the article because, yet again, David Gran phrases it far better than I ever could. This is going to be a pretty long quote, so I'll probably interject at some points. On the day of the trial, pacing the courtroom in a short sleeve shirt, Trafkant told the jury that he had vowed to say on, on the Karabia tapes that he was conducting the most unorthodox sting in the history of Ohio politics. In a role that he said deserved, quote, an Academy Award, Trafficant told the rapt gallery that he had been acting all along as an undercover agent, trying to convince the Karabia brothers that he was on their side so that he could use them to shut down the more powerful Pittsburgh faction. What I did, and what I set out to do very carefully, he said, was to design a plan whereby I would destroy and disrupt the political influence and the mob control over in Mahoning County. Though he admitted to taking money from the mob, Trafficant said he did so, wait for it, only so that his opponent in the campaign wouldn't get it. That just, side note, that might be my favorite excuse for taking bribes that a politician has ever come up with. Well, when someone worse takes the bribes. (laughs) Yeah, I took them so my opponent wouldn't. What do you even do with that? It's perfect. Yeah. It's so good. He's fulfilling a dishonest role to keep everyone else honest. That's right. He's sort of uh, the bane to Mahoning Count to Mahoning County's Batman. He's a necessary evil. I've never seen that film, so I don't know if that's true or not. But okay. I was referring mostly to the comics. Whatever, not the point. And although he acknowledged that his voice was on the tapes, he claimed they were doctored to intimidate, incriminate him. And though he agreed that he had signed quote a statement, he said it was different from the fraudulent quote confession the FBI introduced into evidence. And though he confessed he had initially lied to the FBI about the sting, he said it was only that he couldn't trust its agents, one of whom, back in the 60s, was allegedly tied to the mob. Indeed, he insisted that if the FBI hadn't intervened, he would have cleansed the most corrupt county in the country. The point of the matter I want to make is this, he said. I got inside of the mob. Then I fucked the mob. I I don't know why I've decided he's Elvis. Just go with it. Um, Is that what Elvis sounded like? I've never heard him talk. You've never heard Elvis? No. Oh, man. You're going to have to listen to the other podcast I'm doing. I've never listened to to his music either. Is it good? Well, well, that's a story. That's a digression for another time. It was a stunning performance. When Croner finally took the stand and testified that he'd seen Trafficant sign the confession, the sheriff jumped out of his chair and yelled, That's a goddamn lie! During cross-examination, he taunted his FBI adversary by saying, oh, I see, and no, Bob, 
half crazy, half charming, he referred to himself as my client and asked reporters, how am I doing? In a region instinctively wary of outsiders, he became, by the end of his defense, an emblem of the valley. In Youngstown, people held parties on his behalf. His supporters sold t-shirts touting his heroic struggle. It didn't matter that the IRS would later find Trafficant liable for taking bribes and evading taxes in a civil trial in which he took the fifth, or that the money he had allegedly taken as evidence for the sting was never turned over, or that one of his deputies claimed on the stand that Trafficant had repeatedly asked the deputy to shoot him to make it look like an attempted mob hit. Trafficant understood his community better than anyone else. It took a jury four days to decide to acquit. End of quote. Is that a long time? No, it's not long at all for jury deliberation. Yeah, I, 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 that's what I thought, but I just wanted it's to like, be sure. It's not like short, but it's not that long. Yeah. I, um, Trafficant is the first American in history to beat a RICO case while representing himself. And I think to date, he is the only one to ever do it. Damn. Yeah, he... I have no idea how he did this. I have read some of the court transcripts. He just, he really did just charm the jury. Like he. Again, not a practicing lawyer. No, not a lawyer at all. I mean, he had lawyers help him with like filing motions and stuff, but he represented himself in court. And he was, and he was not a lawyer. No. And he just. I mean, half crazy, half charming describes him in a nutshell. Like he just man, he just put a spell on people. They just loved him. Yeah. And the thing about Trafficant is he didn't stop inv- being involved with the mob. One of his top aides, this guy Charles Onesti, was also a bagman for Lenny Strollo, a famous Youngstown area mobster, and various city officials. Later on, we get into Trafficant's decline in the early two thousands. We'll get into that a little bit. Also, there's an SF Weekly article called Charmed from October 13th, 1999, about this guy, Carmen Policy, who was also a football guy from Youngstown, and it details his involvement with the mob and Jim Trafficant. I pulled a few details from this episode for that, but I don't want to go too into that article on its own, because otherwise this episode will be me endlessly ranting about Midwestern mafia families and football, but I recommend you check it out. And also right into the show, if you would like more Midwestern Mafia madness, because I can't do that. One funny thing, though, despite the fact that Trafficant was acquitted, he was still found responsible for the money because, you know, he did take those bribes and never turned them over. And he didn't pay taxes on those bribes he took. So he just put so, them in his bank account? <laughs> yes. So the IRS garnished his congressional wages to collect the penalties and taxes he owed to the government. Fair enough. He got his revenge years later, though, when he got an amendment through to the IRS Restructuring and Reform Act of 1998, forcing the IRS to prove their case against taxpayers, which meant home seizures dropped from a little over 10,000 the year before to 57 the year after it was passed. So he did have a pretty significant impact on the tax system in that one specific area. And I mean, fewer for, for, for home foreclosures, that, that's good. Home seizures by the IRS. Or home seizures, rather. That's good. Yeah. Yeah. It, yeah. No, I think so. So, you know, that's why he's sort of an interesting figure, because he would occasionally do something good in between being insane. Like defending a certain Ukrainian? Don't worry. that That is coming later. We're getting into his congressional career now. 
One thing I just want to mention, he never faced a tough election, ever. The first time he got elected in 1984, he won by over 15,000 votes, riding the wave of popularity he got after the case. And what's interesting is he turned it into a safe blue district pretty much single-handedly. From 1940 to 1982, Republicans won that district every time except once, and then they won it back that time later. So it had been Republican for over 20 years uninterrupted, and then almost 20 years uninterrupted before that. And the only time the Democrats did win it in 58, it was because the incumbent died like a month before the election. So Trump and that's also flipped. a wave year for Democrats because yeah. there was yeah. a recession in 58. Yeah. So Trafficant flipped a district that had been solid Republican for 40 years. Fun and fact, his yeah. opponent, Lyle Williams, also had what Trafficant would describe his own haircut as the weed whacker haircut. Did he really? Yeah. Look up Lyle Williams. Okay, I will. All right, so Trafficant did this quickly. After his first win, his opponent didn't even get above 50,000 votes until 1998. Sometimes he would triple his vote count, his opponent's vote count. In 1992, he got 84%. In 1996, Republicans didn't even run anyone against him. He got 91% against some guy from the Natural Law Party. Well, he was also quite socially conservative. So much that he regularly got above 90% on scorecards from anti-abortion groups. He opposed gay marriage, immigration, and pretty much any other liberal cause you can think of. The only area where he really sided with the Democrats was on Clinton impeachment, which he was a staunch opponent of and voted against every single article. Was I thought he was fiscally kind of liberal. Uh, in some ways, yeah. The IRS restructuring and reform act yeah. and stuff. You know, stuff like that. He, he wasn't... It was more that he just hated that he had to pay taxes. <laughs> like enough. he wasn't uh, he he didn't he wasn't in favor of like government spending programs really. Like he wasn't in favor of like raising taxes or like, you know, increased benefits, none of that. It was just he hated paying taxes. <laughs> so, he also liked to defend the worst people. And the the aforementioned Ukrainian, John Demyanyuk, birth name Ivan. And fair warning, this section is going to be not fun. I promise it will get lighthearted eventually, but I can't not talk about this. Yeah, if you don't want to talk about, if you don't want to like listen to stuff about the Holocaust or Nazis, then feel free to stop listening for this part. Yeah, I'll put a like thing in the show notes of when you can skip to if you really don't want to hear this. Yeah. Born in Ukraine in 1920, Ivan Demyanyuk gets conscripted into the Red Army in 1940 taken as a prisoner by the Germans in 1942 and some gets put in a POW camp and then he's transferred between there and another camp a few times. He gets taken to Traniki and then he's transferred to Sobibor, an extermination camp in Poland, as a right? guard. Yes, as a guard. All the extermination camps were in Poland. I'm not going to go into the details of Sobibor. You can look it up for yourself if you want. But know that it was the fourth deadliest camp of the war, and it existed solely to exterminate people. Uh, yeah, there was um, one was success. There was one place. successful escape staged ever during its operational history. There's also which, a, revel a revolt, though, right? Yeah, that was the escape. Uh, it was organized by Alexander Pachersky and Leon Feldhandler, which is a potential future episode topic because they're quite interesting. In 1942, in 1952, he makes it to the U.S. under the Displaced Persons Act of 1948, 
which is a whole other can of worms because the initial version of it essentially excluded Jewish refugees until a later immigration act was passed, but we don't got to get into that right now. He managed to get in under this act, lying and saying he was a driver at Sobibor, not a concentration camp guard. He moves to a suburb of Cleveland called Seven Hills, changes his name from Ivan to John, and becomes a U.S. citizen until evidence of unco- is uncovered of his actions and that he might have been the guard known as Ivan the Terrible. His case is insanely complicated, but the short version. He got extradited to Israel, tried, sentenced to death by hanging. The Israeli Supreme Court said there was reasonable doubt on whether or not he was really Ivan the Terrible, and they said that even though he was still a concentration camp guard, he wasn't guilty because the prosecution's whole case was based on him being Ivan the Terrible. His story ends with him dying in 2009 while his trial in Germany was still ongoing. But the part we care about is Trafficant's involvement. Wait, quick he, question. Yeah? In Germany, wasn't he on trial for something different? Wasn't he on trial for like Holocaust denial or something? I think it was It was or, part of his trial still. No, I'm thinking of something, of somebody else. Wait, but didn't it kind didn't it kind didn't it, didn't evidence come to light that suggested that he was a camp guard, but not Ivan the Terrible? No, he was absolutely a concentration camp guard. They figured that out. No, that, that I know they figured out, but wasn't it He was it not possible? Ivan the Terrible. He was okay, probably yeah. not. That's we'll what I was probably thinking. never know who I the terrible was. Yeah. And he's probably dead. Jim Trafficant and Pat Buchanan really go to bat for this guy. They said he didn't get a fair trial, that it was a case of mistaken identity, that he was innocent, which technically it was a case of a mistaken identity, but I don't really feel that bad because, you know, he was still a concentration camp guard. Yeah, like he was technically innocent in the sense that he was not Ivan the Terrible, but he wasn't innocent in the sense that he was not a guard. Yeah, he was still a concentration camp guard, so, you know, still a monster. Yeah, not really shedding tears for him. Yeah. Uh, Pat Buchanan supposedly wrote a piece that was called, like, Demyan Yuk is convicted by the KGB, or something insane. Trafficant wrote a thing for the American Free Press, this anti-Semitic conspiratorial website, I guess, founded by Willis Carto, who is a white nationalist and Holocaust denier about it. During his own second trial, which we'll get into later, Trafkant wanted to remove Jewish jurors because of this. When he, After he left office, he said that Israel is, quote, influencing much of our domestic policy. He also said of Israel, quote, they own the Congress. So, uh, yeah. Yeah. Uh, that's the... We're almost done with Nazis, I promise. Um, he was a huge fan of Arthur Rudolph, a not NASA scientist brought over during Operation Paperclip. Arthur Rudolph was working on V-2 rockets with Werner von Braun, and during World War II, he was working with the Mittelwerk at the Mittelwerk facility, which was a mine that had, was later converted to a storage facility and then a production facility, and all of the people who worked there where people were concentration camp victims. Rudolph specifically uh, wasn't like overseeing the direct pro- uh, production of it, to my knowledge. He, or no, 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 he was, but he was also overseeing like the shipment of stuff. But he was complicit in rockets made with concentration camp labor, in short. So either way, not a good guy. Uh, the lowest estimates of prisoner deaths at Mittelwerk are 12,000. So... Very bad man. Yes. Uh, Jim Traff, America loved him, though. We uh, He became a NASA scientist as part of Operation Paperclip when we brought him over. What was this guy's name? Arthur Rudolph. Uh, oh, okay. I think I've heard of him. Yeah. 
Uh, the end result of an investigation into his war crimes was that he left the U.S. and gave up his U.S. citizenship in exchange for not being prosecuted. Trafficant blamed the, quote, powerful Jewish lobby that influences Congress, and he even arranged to, um, to meet Rudolph on the Canadian border, although Rudolph was arrested before this could happen. He was also Oh, the- God. Yeah. Really going off the deep end. Yeah, I promise we're done with Nazis now. Okay. But not with the anti-Semitism. They're, he's still doing that. No, we're going to get into some anti-Semitism a little later. But we're we're done with fascism. We're done with, like, actual Nazism now. Okay. He was the only Democrat in the House to uh, who was still an ally of Bob Dornan after his defeat, which I'm not going to get into Bob Dornan's defeat. Keep listening, and we will eventually do an episode on Orange County Republican psychos, and he will be in it. So we're going to table that for now. He also ran for president in 1988, as evidenced by a news report. I'll link in the description. And dear listener, if you have any authentic trafficant for president merchandise or know where where to get some, DM the podcast account or email us because I want it and I will pay you for it. I am completely serious. (laughs) If you can get me an authentic trafficant for president button, let's talk. I'll pay you. I would also pay for that, not because like I like Jim Trafficant, but because I it would be an interesting historical item to have. Yeah, as two people who are big history nerds. Yeah, as you can tell by the fact that we do this podcast. Yeah, Youngstown Clothing Co. actually sells a Trafficant for President shirt that, last I checked, cost twenty six dollars. So if that's a thing you're into, you could get that. It's got a pretty good drawing of him. Now, we're sort of starting to get to the end here. One thing I learned doing research for this episode is, Gabe, did you know that statements made on the House floor are protected from libel and slander laws? I forgot that, but now I remember it because of the research we did for Jim Trafficant, which let's just say Jim Trafficant was uh, very thankful that 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 this law was in place. Absolutely. Uh, He liked to openly insinuate that the Justice Department and various Youngstown area FBI Department of Justice officials were involved in criminal activity. In the show notes, I'm going to include some links of him talking, and I'm probably going to end the episode with some some audio of him talking that I take from C-SPAN, because, wow, did he say things that otherwise would have been slander. Uh, He loved talking about how they've been going after him for 20 years. Uh, which is a weird coincidence, because that's around the same time he started taking bribes from the mafia. Weird that that happened. All of his speeches on the House floor have a sort of, like, more silly version of Alex Jones to them. He does what Alex Jones does a lot, where he claims to have documents from insiders that reveal all this in- insane stuff, but that he's always going to reveal them later, and then he never does. That's literally what Q- QAnon is all about. Yeah, no, it's it's the same thing where you're like, oh yeah, I've got all these documents, but you can't see them. Except now that I think about it, it, it's except, also what Mormonism did. <laughs> you mean wait, who Joseph Smith? You mean? Yes, that's also what Joseph Smith did. Now that I think, but what I was gonna say, except as far as I know, Alex Jones or Jim Trafkant rather did not accuse anybody of being a pedophile, unless I am wrong. Uh, I didn't listen to everything he ever said. It wouldn't shock me if he said that at yeah. some point. As far as I know, as far as we know, he did not. But we're not saying that he, without doubt, did not. Yeah. Uh, yeah. His last speech on the House floor is also going in the show notes, and it is fascinating. It's about 10 minutes long, and it is insane. His last so- House speech? His last speech on the House floor, yes. Oh, okay. 
his voice is like ragged. He's so paranoid. At one point, he literally threatens to rip out an FBI agent's throat. Oh, oh no. Pretty much no one in the house was defending him at this point, uh, except Ron Paul, who asked for the vote expelling him to be delayed indefinitely. Oh, I'm shocked Ron Paul would defend someone controversial. That doesn't sound like him. Come on. Yeah, exactly. Come on. Stop future, it. Future episode, Ron Paul. That's all I'm going to say there. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, I will find those newsletters. That's all I'm going to say. He warned, Trafficant warned against sending him to prison, saying, quote, I will break out of prison and I'll make a necktie out of some of these bureaucrats. He also wasn't allowed to wear his famous toupee while in prison. So his Why parents were ready. Yeah, I guess they don't give you a toupee in prison. Maybe you could, like, hide stuff in it? I don't know. He denied that his hair was a toupee for years. So when he, w- when he went to court and wasn't allowed to wear it, it was, like, shocking to people. I was honestly surprised that it, that it, that it was a toupee. Yeah. Also, one thing um, I couldn't really fit into the thing, into the script, but I just want to mention. He, uh, his catchphrase on the House floor, the way he would end his speeches was he would say, beam me up, Mr. Speaker, like as a reference to Star Trek. <laughs> this guy was weird. So what caused his downfall, you might ask? Well, at, by this point, into, he's already been marginalized in the House of Representatives because he votes for Dennis Hastert for Speaker in 2001. Now, remember, Trafficant was a Democrat his whole career. Hastert was obviously a Republican. So the Democrats were like, fuck you, dude. And they didn't give him any committee seats. By the way, uh, Dennis Hastert, a convicted felon and also child molester. Yeah, also future episode topic, Dennis Hastert. Potential. Very bad person. Very bad person. Oh, awful human being. Yeah, just monstrously evil. Anyways, even though Trafficant voted for Hastert, he didn't get anything from Republicans for it. So they obviously didn't give him committee assignments either because he's a Democrat. So he was the first House member in decades to not have any committee assignments. So we just kind of just hung around? Yeah, he could vote on general stuff, but most of the House's actual work gets done in committee. That's yeah, where provisions get stru- added in and uh, and uh, ripped out and stuff. Yeah, so like, if you're not on any committees, you're not doing a whole lot. Like you're voting, which can matter if it's a very close vote, or if you're in the Senate, because a lot of those votes are closer, but still. Yeah, exactly. But what formally got him removed and brought him down? Well, do you remember when I said one of his uh, congressional aides was a bagman for Lenny Strollo, a high-ranking Midwestern mobster? One of his what was a bagman? One of his high, one of his congressional aides. Um. Uh. Who was which congressional aide? Charles O'Nasty. Okay, and what happened? He was a bagman for the Midwestern mobster Lenny Strollo. All right, whatever. I did say that about twenty minutes ago. No, but I mean, like, like what happened next? You're you're saying it like oh, you're yeah. saying it up for something next. He got else. arrested. His arrest case is very complicated, and I don't want this episode to be even more Midwestern Mafia stuff. But, you know, maybe in a few, maybe some other time. In short, the feds, because of Lenny Strollo's testimony, the feds caught Trafficant doing a couple things. First, putting people on his campaign staff and making them give him some of the money. This is textbook corruption. It happens everywhere. One of Bolsonaro's kids in Brazil got accused of doing this. Like, this is the most blatant form of corruption in any country that has a Congress. Trafficant took it a step further. He also made his campaign staff do private work for him, much like Byron Looper, 
by making them clean the horse stables on his farm. Oh, by the way, his farm will be relevant at, at the end of his life. I'm just going to leave it at that. <laughs> yeah. You'll remember from our Byron Looper episode that this is very illegal. Second. Which, is it accurate description of like 75% of the actions taken by just any of our podcast uh, topics at random? Yeah, we're we're rarely going to talk about politicians who never did anything illegal. If ever. Yeah. Second, he took some money from businessmen, not as campaign donations, just as kind of bags of cash, in exchange for help with, you know, legal troubles, regulations, judges, that kind of thing. Third, and what else would it be? Not paying taxes. Because he hated paying taxes more than anything in the world. What? Come on. Stop. I no, think the, stop it. I think the only thing he hated more than the Jews was not pay, was paying taxes. And knowing Jim Trafkin and also just the tropes around Jewish people and money, that those are probably those are definitely connected. That is entirely possible. The only person who voted against him being expelled from the House was Gary Condit, whose story I won't get into because uh, he's also a potential future episode topic. He represents himself again. And I found some documents from the trial, and it's clear that they had quite a bit of evidence, and he had nothing but bluster, just like last time. And this time, it didn't work. He was put in jail on August 6th, 2002. He told CNN before his trial, I'm going to look them right in the eye and go at them. I'm just the son of a truck driver, and I'm going to try to kick their ass. Uh, he didn't. Uh, Anthony yeah, Anthony Traficanti, a similarly named but no relation aide, said he's got an energy source which is unknown, and he's upbeat. He doesn't seem depressed about it. Wait, his name is Anthony Traficanti? Yes. And no there was relation. no relation? No relation that I could find, no. <laughs> what if that was like a guy, that sounds like a guy Jim Traficanti just like made up on paper. Yeah, right? <laughs> Only just because like, I'm not saying like, oh, the name is stupid, but it's so similar to Jim Traficant's name. And Jim Trafficant is exactly the type of person to like create like fake guys to like to like to vouch for him under like names that aren't his name own name but are very similar. Yeah, I'm not James Trafficant. I'm Bames Schmafficant. Yeah, basically. Yeah. He also asked his employees to lie under oath in testimony and help him get rid of evidence. He said to them, "I've been a real pain in the ass, Scott. If you were in the room when I threw boxes, I apologize." Also, very illegal. Yeah. Um, yeah, don't... Uh, uh, listeners, some free legal advice from your favorite non-lawyer. Uh, if Don't ask people to lie under oath for you and help, them get and help you get rid of evidence. And if you do, don't get caught doing it. Because it will not help you. Just a general moral tip. Number one, that... Number two, don't just throw things at people. Yeah, that also does not make people like you. Uh, so he was in prison from 2002 to 2009. Uh, he refused visitors pretty much the whole time. The CBS affiliate for Youngstown said he served in at least three different federal prisons. Uh, he wrote some letters back and forth with various people, including David Duke, former head of the Ku Klux Klan. Uh, David Duke actually told people to donate to him more than once. He was quite a fan of him uh, because because Trafficant was very anti-immigration. Another potential uh, episode topic. Potential episode topic, David Duke. Absolutely. Uh, he also once uh, started, a, he once got put in solitary for starting a riot because some guard was yelling at him and he said, people can't hear you. Speak up. David or Jim? Jim. I don't think David Duke has ever been to prison. Has he? No, he did. Oh, okay. 
I, I think for other corruption things. Yeah, okay. So I actually found an interview that Jim Traficant did with Project Camelot, a conspiratorial platform that mostly talks about aliens. It's from sometime after he left Congress, and the video I found of it wasn't on Project Camelot's channel, and it was from 2012, so it was from either 2012 or earlier. A uh, couple highlights of that video. He gets to, he regularly gets distracted by people walking by because he's doing it in a public place. He's incredibly proud of getting John Demyanyuk off, even though he didn't really do that. Uh, he claimed Alan Dershowitz, it, Alan Dershowitz, fellow podcaster and potential future episode topic, really went after him. I didn't even bother looking into that. Uh, he goes on this whole thing about how great his bodyguard in Israel was. I don't know what that was about. He talks about the Demyanyuk thing forever. Um, he talks about a bill he passed in the House that would have brought 10,000 troops to the U.S. border and said it died in the Senate. I have no idea what bill he's talking about there. He said his prison was 50% illegal immigrants, so he intentionally put himself into solitary confinement. He said he met John Gotti's son and that John Gotti told him, quote, don't take any medication. And that John Gotti's jaw rotted off his face and he died from prison medication. That doesn't sound true. That doesn't sound possible. I didn't look. Uh, he also threatens to put a curse on the House of Representatives. Like, Wait, you so know, he's dabbling in witchcraft now? Yeah, I guess so. I mean, I guess, I mean, he, I guess if there's one man, Jim Trafficant, just, I want to do more banter about this, but I don't know what to say. Yeah. And, of course, he advertises his book, America's Last Minute Man, which currently retails for about $70 on Amazon, so I didn't buy it to read it. Sorry. I thought you were going to say, like, the total, like, like the amount of sales it's made, and I thought you were going to say, like, eight. <laughs> I don't know how well it sold. I didn't look. I'm not sure that information is public unless it gets the bestseller list, which it did not. Uh, the top comment on that video, by the way, is, and I quote, thanks to the Jews, America missed out on a great president here. Yeah, no, so, I, I remember looking at the comments at one point. Yeah, that was, that was kind of, that was basically all the comments was just you know. Weren't there the a few also? Weren't there a few also blaming Mossad for him going to jail? Yeah, that's that's the same thing. Yeah, no, I know. I'm just saying that's like another like another common theme in the comments. Yeah, the American Free Press, which bills itself as America's last real newspaper, they loved him. They speculated he was murdered. Uh, American Free Press, it should be noted is the successor to The Spotlight, a publication ran by Liberty Lobby, which is insanely anti-Semitic, fairly influential far-right newspaper, big on promoting survivalism and the posse comitatus, a group we will definitely talk about at some point in the future. Uh, according to Jim Traficant, I think Willis Cardo and Jim Tucker deserve great credit for bringing attention to the issue of international bankers. Uh, you can guess what trafficant means by international bankers. Yeah, there's only really one logical conclusion to make there. Yeah. I think Willis Cardo and Jim Tucker put the spotlight on this entity in reference to the Bilderberg Group, which, again, you can infer what he means by that. I don't uh. think I need to say it. He worked with them on something called Project Freedom USA, which described itself as, quote, a grassroots populist initiative organi organization that sought to terminate the Internal Revenue Service and fire the Federal Reserve. What does that mean, fire the, just like everyone on the Federal Reserve Board? Yeah, get rid of the Federal Reserve. 
uh, they he wanted they wanted to establish a fifteen percent sales tax and get rid of our quote communist tax system. A big thing in right wing conspiracy circles is that the income tax is the second plank of the communist manifesto. If we ever do an episode on the posse comitatus, we will get into why they think that. It's weird. Their eight point plan was to eliminate all income and payroll taxes, replace income taxes and payroll taxes with a flat 15% national retail sales tax on all new goods and services. That's something libertarians really like, a consumption tax. Yeah, and uh, it's a terrible idea for reasons we don't have time to explain. But, you know, there are some, like, sort of psycho-libertarian guys involved with this organization. Uh, they want to repeal the 16th Amendment, which is the amendment that authorized income tax. They want to abolish the Internal Revenue Service. They want to, quote, the contractual relationship with the Federal Reserve System is canceled, thus placing all monetary policy back under the control of Congress as mandated by our Constitution. Okay, quick question about yep. constitutional amendments. Do they have an opinion on the 19th Amendment? Because I have a feeling they do. I couldn't find one, but I'm going to guess they weren't huge fans of it. What about the 17th Amendment? Which one's that? Direct election of senators. That might be a little too esoteric for them. I don't know. I yeah, don't know. I could see. It. I don't know. All purchase of our bonds and treasury bills will be paid. All debt owed to the Federal Reserve as interest is hereby repudiated. Eight. Congress shall issue debt-free, interest-free money for the nation, backed by our gold, silver, national assets, as well as the goods and services made available by American businesses, and the full faith of confidence in our American econ- in our so powerful they, economy. So they wanted to bring back the gold standard? Not only did they want to bring back the gold standard, they wanted to bring back the silver standard, which is so much weirder. Wait, did they want to use the, uh, did they want to use bimetallism, or was it nothing that simple? It was bimetallism, yeah. Oh, okay. Which is a political ideology from the 1800s. That, that like, kind of cut on, but not really? Yeah. Jim Trafkant would have loved William Jennings Bryan, is basically my main takeaway. Well, no, Bryan wanted free silver. I don't don't think these people want free silver. No, I, I couldn't figure out what exactly their plan was beyond that line of backed by our gold silver. I'm also not sure how interest-free money works or debt-free money. Uh, I'm not an economist. Then, like, what's the point of, like, lending money in the first place? Well, I assume their point is, you know, the Jews are doing all the money lending, so we have to get rid of money lending. But but they also hate communism, so they must love capitalism and profit. And part of of what makes you money is by lending money on interest. Uh, Never mind. God damn it. Yeah, I, uh, yeah. Um, they also uh, want to reduce the size of government by 30% by eliminating the Department of Education, because it's always about charter schools with these fucking people. Wait, what does that mean, to reduce it by 30%? Like staff, like money, like the money we spend on it? What does that mean? It just said 30%. That, that's, not government is not a unit <laughs> of measurement. Yeah, I'd like to reduce the size of the government by four units of government. That, yeah, that's not, that a, means that's not a unit. They want to remove the Department of Energy. Oh, I'm, Which, sure, I'm sure that would, would work out great. I feel like everyone thinks the Department of Energy mostly regulates like oil and stuff, when really what it does is nuclear stuff. So but also, I think but they it, just didn't know that. If anything, that makes it more important, because oil, you can have spills and stuff, but radiation state can stay in the air for thousands upon thousands of years. 
Yeah, eliminating the Department of Energy would be the quickest way to just, like, have a nuclear apocalypse. Just have, like, uh, a Fukushima in the country every day? Yeah, for, like, a month. Um, the Environmental Protection Agency, because, of course, uh, and the Office of Homeland Security. Which, I'm not really sure why they would want to eliminate the guys who do all the, like, who torture people abroad, because they mostly like that. I'm not really no, sure what the deal is there. I figured they're probably they're probably isolationists though, right? Yeah, probably. Yeah, so they probably don't want an expansion of anything that of any security or military state. Yeah, probably not. Maybe. That's kind of unexpected. Their, their ideology is kind of incoherent. Just like Jim Traficants? Yeah. So that's kind of the end of his career. We can get into he finally dies. Oh, actually, he runs for Congress in 2010 as an independent. Uh, he got like 17 percent, right? He got he got 16 percent. Yes, he lost the election to Tim Ryan, his former uh, aide. Yeah, Tim Ryan actually also um, beat him in 2002, which is pretty funny. <laughs> Did he run as a writing candidate then, or just an independent? I think he ran as the, in 2002. I think Trafkant ran as a, as a writing candidate. I wonder how much he got. I'm going to look this up. Around 15%. As a write-in? That's impressive. Yeah. No, he did very well. Uh, his platform was, what else repealing the 16th Amendment? Uh, Trafkan also ran from prison in 2002, making him one of very few people who have ever done that. He, uh, But he could not pull Elisa Murkowski, not, not with the running from jail stuff, but with winning a write-in campaign. Yeah. Trafkan is released from prison in 2009. His supporters welcome him home with a Trafficant lookalike contest, welcome home Jimbo t-shirts, and an Elvis impersonator. <laughs> I thought you were going to say he was, I thought what was going to happen next is he entered the contest and then threatened to shoot, like, the winner because, like, Jim himself came in third or something. <laughs> yeah, maybe. Like, no, like, that would, I mean, you think, like, you, you laugh, but, like, that, let's be honest, that is something that 100% could happen in his life. He also... Worked for a couple months as a weekend talk radio host for the Cleveland news station WTAM. And if you know where I can get the tapes of those radio broadcasts, please tell me because I want them so bad. Have you looked at any university databases? No, I have not, actually. Um, they, a lot of them have like microfilm and stuff and like recordings. Well, then I guess I have to make a pilgrimage to the University of Pittsburgh or something. Because I will find, or maybe I like Case Western. I don't know. Just start looking at like notably, start looking at notable universities like University of Youngstown, Ohio State, Case yeah, Western. Right. I literally will. That okay? That'll be my project for tomorrow. Yeah. Uh, after the uh, words, he died. He was injured in an accident on his farm. He drove his tractor into a barn, and it flipped over and collapsed underneath. He was taken to. Uh, a health center in Youngstown. Uh, and then, I forgot to put this in my notes, on September 27th, 2014, he died in hospice in Poland, Ohio, at age Wait, 73. Don't a lot of his supporters think he was murdered? Some of them, yes. Wait, how How would that, like, how do they reconcile that with the fact that his tractor, tractor flipped over? Do they think that, like, people strategically placed rocks on his farm to, like, sabotage him? Yeah, basically. They think, you know, they, there was a bomb planted in the tractor or there was a cover up or something like that. Even though he had like no like shrapnel wounds or whatever. Yeah. 
Also, because technically he didn't die from the tractor falling on him. He died from lack of oxygen because of the tractor was on him and he couldn't breathe. How long was he, did he uh, linger on though after he was taken like out from under the tractor? Like three days. And he was like on, you know, life support. Bullet. Oh, was that the point where it's like, it didn't kill immediately, but his brain was pretty much non- non-functional? Yeah, pretty much. Gotcha. Yeah. I, uh... Trafgant gets compared to Trump quite a bit, and I can sort of see why. He was similarly insanely corrupt, who sort of had these affectations of populism, but didn't really do much for anyone except himself. Although he did more than Trump did. Yeah, I mean, the the home foreclosure thing is, or not foreclosure, seizure thing is genuinely very significant. Yeah, Trump has never done that, as far yeah. as I know. Yeah. And he's still seen by by the media as this sort of authentic figure who's very popular with the white working class in his area. And in Trafficant's case, he kind of was. He genuinely was not from a rich family like Trump. He was just as hawkish on immigration. Wait, Trump was this... from a rich family. No, that's what I'm saying. He wasn't from a rich oh, family. Oh, I thought you're saying I thought oh, I thought you said like Trump, he was not from a rich family. And I was gonna say that could not be further from the truth. Trump was born no, rich. I meant, if I said like Trump, I meant to say unlike Trump. That's my Oh, point. okay, okay. Maybe I misheard you. Yeah, possibly. Uh very right wing on immigration, like you said. Very corrupt. Uh he kinda liked to just ramble a lot, like Trump. Always has a new theory for who's out to get him this time. Yeah, very paranoid. Probably because of corruption, um, potentially involved with the mob, like Trump in his early days. Was he? There's some allegations made about some construction sites. Yeah, I haven't seen any evidence though. So I'll I'll send you some stuff later. Yeah. Nothing's proven, but you know he he like bragged about working with the mob sometimes. So you know. Anyways, uh, we don't got to get into that. We need if to we ever do out. a Trump episode. No, we don't. It, I don't want to get sued for libel. We won't. Oh. That's, yeah, he, he said that. Oh, I can okay. prove he said, that. yeah, we're fine. In Traffic Hant's case, he, like, he is kind of a more authentic Trump, I think, but he's much more of a character in his own right. And I think to reduce him to just kind of the proto-Trump is a little bit silly. Yeah, I think that's a problem. Like, that's, I feel like that's, like, a problem in general media coverage to, like, of just, like, oh, this person's like Trump when they try to explain, like, right-wing people in other parts of the world as well, which is, like, it's not entirely inaccurate, but, like, I don't think you can just use, like, put the Trump template perfectly on to say, like, Bolsonaro or Marine Le Pen or Trafkin no, or anybody all, and just say, oh, they're, yeah, no, yeah. Like, they, like, they are, they, they are, they result, they get popular, popularity partially because of the unique conditions facing their country. Yeah. I, Although, uh, I will say this, Trump really likes fancy, expensive suits. Trafficant's fashion was not like that. No, Trafficant was very, like, used car salesman chic, I guess is the best way you could put him. I wouldn't even say, like, chic at all. He just really liked dressing up in denim. Yeah, that's true. He wore denim suits. I I do, too. I mean, I like denim, too, but, like, I mainly limit to, like, pants and jackets. I don't wear denim suits. Yeah. I'm sorry. I've been talking for a really long time. I don't really have a great outro at the moment. I could probably wear a good denim suit. Yeah, you probably could. Anyway, what was I going to say? Um, uh, oh, by the way, Jim Trafkin has some uh, very interesting moments on the House floor. Yeah, I'm just going to play the uh, as our outro. I'm just going to splice in a C-SPAN video 
of him of like their best moments of Jim Trafficant of just kind of him rambling. Uh, and we're allowed to use it because it's C-SPAN, so it's public domain. I checked. So that's going to be how we end. So uh, follow us on Twitter at ApposedPod. If you want to email the show, you can do so at runningunopposed at gmail, runningunopposedpod at gmail.com. Uh, until next time, listener, thanks for listening, and have a good day. All right. See you, guys. This, this has been real. I'm Gabe. And I'm Rose. And, and good we'll night. see you next time. Good night and good luck. Yep. Am I different? Yeah. Have I changed my pants? No. Deep down, you know you want to wear wider bottoms. You're just not secure enough to do it. Prove it, sucker. Prove it. Prove we're wrong. Do I do my hair with a weed whacker? I admit. Beam me up here. Do I wear skinny ties? Yeah. Coach, wide ties make me look heavier than I am, and I'm heavy enough. I've never been a quitter. I don't think I'll quit now. Mr. Gephardt says you should. Gephardt has no balls. Beam me up. I say it's time for Congress to shove these illegal tactics right up the assets of the IRS. I think it's time for our president, Mr. Bush, to say, read my lips, get out. What we're saying is, read my pocketbook. Beam me up, Mr. Speaker. It's time for President Bush to say, read my lips. This president has gone from Disney to Spielberg. Looney Tunes outer space. He's not finished yet. I predict his next production will be a Stephen King thriller. Since the bomb did not detonate, it was not deadly. Beam me up, Mr. Speaker. News reports say after a game-winning goal at a soccer match in Spain, a player celebrated by biting his teammate who scored on the genitals. Beam me up. Now, I've heard of high fives, back slaps, butt slaps, but ladies and gentlemen, this takes the family jewels. God almighty here. I yield back what has now become known as the big bite. Heavy enough to cause a hernia for the jolly green giant. <clears throat> Maybe it's the type of jobs that are being created. Check this out. How about a handkerchief folder? A drawstring knotter, a hooker inspector, a pantyhose crotch closer machine operator supervisor. I'm a jackass. A muff winder, a fur blower, a wizard operator, a brazier cup molder fitter. I probably should have been a little bit more diplomatic. How about a drawstring knotter? That's really a goal in life. Screw supervisor, nut former. Ball sorter, needle straightener, bucket chucker, slitter, creaser, slaughter operator. Don't laugh. These are all jobs listed by the Department of Labor. He better help my district after I'm in jail, too, or I'll come visit him. I'd have to say, beam me up, and I think these screw supervisors all work for the Internal Revenue Service. Show me the beef. The Department of Agriculture has come to several conclusions. Number one, Big farm animals produce more manure than small farm animals. And number two, manure stinks. Well, I'm congressman. 
you don't rape my constituents. Beam me up, Mr. Speaker. $200 million to determine that manure stinks. I think they should be handcuffed to a chain link fence, flogged, and all of their hearsay evidence should be thrown the hell out. And if they lie again, I'm going to go over and kick them in a crotch. Thank you very much.